Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes again, chapter 9 this morning. And isn't that what everyone is after, some kind of living hope, some kind of confidence, some kind of promise, some kind of blessing in a world that seems to be going sideways in more ways than we can even count. You know, as we reflect upon the book of Ecclesiastes, there's so much in this book about the reality of life under the sun, about what it means to to live uh, to the fullest. And yet so many times we get caught into a wandering in our hearts and minds and missing the reality that we have a living hope, caught up in wishing that things would go back to normal. Of course, that normal is something that you demand. That normal is something that you expect. That normal is something that you want. And isn't it funny how the normal of yesterday gets better and better in the craziness of today? But you can't go back. And there are no do-overs. And in fact, we learn in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is not you that defines that which is normal. It is the God who sits on His throne course, that tendency to romanticize the past is a tendency that we all have. And it's important to reflect and to find joy and, and comfort in the things of the past, but there is no going back to those good old days, and in reality, they weren't as good as you thought. Especially as we age and our memories get a little fuzzy. Some of us demand answers to, a, to the way that life turned out, reasons for the questions that we have. Many rush to blame someone or everybody else for their own issues and problems, and in fact, sometimes they turn and include God in that blame as well. We find in the book of Ecclesiastes much of this wrestling and struggle in the mind of the Koheleth who was writing and testifying of life and and offering some of his frustrations, seeking through wisdom, seeking through knowledge, seeking through the pleasures of life, seeking through name and reputation, a madness and self-indulgence, the answers to the deepest questions in life but he cannot find them. They are nowhere to be found, and he comes to the conclusion time and and time again that he doesn't have it figured out, and he can't get it figured out. And what is the point? Anyhow, he's looking for a living hope, a living confidence, a living notion and understanding that that everything's going to be okay, but he cannot find it, for he has limited his search to those things that are under the sun. Perhaps the reason Ecclesiastes resonates with so many of us is that we fight the same battle. And some of us have concluded that in our own wisdom, we don't make the same mistakes that he made. But don't kid yourself. We, we all do. We all want the answers to the things that cannot be answered and solutions to the complexities of life. When we realize it's not to be found, the finality of the conclusion informs us that all of the problems of life defy solution. More time, greater intelligence, better better methods, a new team of researchers, none of these is the answer. The problem lies in the difference between divine and human, between God and even the brightest and best of God's creatures. And that was the crux of the matter. He came to the conclusion that things were out of his control. And he gave an acknowledgement that they were in the control of the hand of God, and yet he showed his displeasure in that. That wasn't enough for him. He needed more. So he tells us in chapter 2 that whatever his eyes desired, he did not keep from them. He kept not my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. I looked at what I gained and considered that all that my hands had done and the toil that I extended in doing it, behold, 
all was vanity. There were no answers and solutions. It was like chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Through the first seven chapters and even beyond, he offers this lament and this dead end that he had pursued with all of his being and every aspect of his soul. And it seems now that he is trying to provide some alternate solutions or approaches, although you must dig and search for them in the text. When we come to the text in chapter 9, again, we will find some of the same complexities that we found throughout the book, some of the same disagreements with commentators and scholars, some of the same questions as to what he really is trying to say. But he is rehearsing and saying the same things that he has been building to throughout the rest of the text. And he is sharing with us the reality of life under the sun and calling us to a simpler life. As we look at the text this morning and try and focus on that simpler life, we all are reminded of some of the things that he says in chapter 7. If your Bibles are open to Ecclesiastes, he says in verse 27 of chapter 7, Behold, this is what I found. And all of my searching, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, while, while trying to figure this out in a logical process, breaking down and making and taking an account of everything, which my soul has sought repeatedly, I have not found. He says in verse 29, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God has created us with a purpose. God has created us with a desire and longing for Him. God has created us, setting eternity into our hearts. God has created us to enjoy life. Sometimes in Christianity, our hope is a dead hope. We just hope we die and it's all over with. But our Savior promises us a living hope that doesn't negate that we're looking for a better day when He makes all things new but provides for us this reality that life can be good under the sun. And as he searched and looked and searched and looked, he said, you know what? We're looking in the wrong places. We're scheming to make all of this happen on our terms, and that's just not the way life works. How many of you found that to be true? We realize this frustration and his inability to make sense of things on his own. He realized that that was the burden that God gave us to live our lives to the best of our ability without any promises for tomorrow. God created us for Him. He has allowed us to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we will never be finally satisfied with anything under the sun, our hope and satisfaction can only be in Christ. It was Augustine, one of his most famous sayings that said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. Are you restless this morning? Do you understand the words of the Koheleth? Do you understand the schemes of man? Are you able to see where your pursuits are taking you and the emptiness of life under the sun? Are you seeking to find your rest in Christ, but wrestling with that rest and the tensions and the realities of life? We give this false notion in Christianity that if we rest in Christ, He is going to give us our best life now. You haven't been paying attention. That's not the way this works. Somehow we've bought into this reciprocal determinism that as long as I do this, this, and this, God is obligated to do this, this, and this. In fact, we demand that He does. And when He doesn't, how'd that work out for you? At the end of the day, as He wrestles with these deepest issues in life, He begins to come to some conclusions that He shares Before we begin this morning, I want to remind you that we are looking at the text, and the writer in particular is speaking in different voices, not different personalities, but voices. 
at times limited to the under-the-sun perspective. He speaks as a pessimist and a cynic. What is the point of all of this? It doesn't make any sense. I hated life, he says in chapter 2. Then at other times we see him beginning in chapter 2 speaking of the hedonist. Well, then I'm just going to make my own way and forget about the world and to forget about others and forget about God. I will do what I want to do, and surely that will make me happy. I will pursue all the pleasures under the sun. And every once in a while, he speaks as the apologist. An apologist isn't making apologies. He's giving a reason for life. And we will see in this text that he gives us a glimpse as an apologist. And he reminds us of what really, really matters. I don't know about you, just when I think I have a grip on this, I lose my grip and I fall into the same traps that the writer has fallen into. And I begin to wonder, what's the point? He begins to share with us his conclusions in chapter 9. Father, bless us, encourage us, challenge us, teach us. Through the Word and the ministry of Your Spirit, as He applies that Word, grant us insight and wisdom that provides for a living hope, provides a way to believe that a better day is coming, yet in a very balanced kind of way, teaches us to live this life the way you've created us to live and experience this life. It is such a, a fleeting, chasing after the wind proposition. And as we challenge ourselves, and as we struggle ourselves, and as we try and make sense ourselves, may we find the sense of life made only in Christ alone, our living hope. Grant us peace this morning, no matter what our burdens, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1, or chapter 9, verse 1, he writes, but all of this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun. And that same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after they go to the dead. But he, is joined, but he who is joined with all of the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. For the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love for all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because this is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol which you were going. As he begins this chapter, he says, but. He is drawing some conclusions. He is 
offering some wisdom. He is sharing in the text with some proverbs that are difficult to understand and some language that seems to get away from us at times. But indeed, what he is talking about in chapter 9 is the reality that we all live this life and whatever allotted days we have been given, and we all then die. And based upon that reality, he is trying to figure out, okay, so how do I live between now and then? How do I make sense between now and then? All of this I laid to heart. I took to heart. I seriously spent time considering the realities of life and the realities of death. If you're here this morning and you think this is a morbid book with a morbid text and he's always consumed with dying and emptiness and toil and labor, you have misunderstood the text. You have not been able to grasp some of these nuggets as an apologist that he, that he shares with you in the context of this text. If there are some of you here that want to hear about your best life now, stop talking about dying, Pastor Jim. That's just a terrible topic for, for the worship service. You too are a fool. We live in a culture that tries to deny death at every single turn, yet all of us know in the bottom of our heart, it's coming. It's coming. So he says, I took all of this to heart, and and I was examining it. I was trying to certify and audit and establish and, and make sense of it all to answer those biggest questions in life. Who am I and where am I going? As he took all of that to heart, He said, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. I've I've realized that no matter what might happen, whether righteous or unrighteous, I know that no matter what might happen for the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. God is ultimately in control. I I am not. And yet the irony of this reality is we think that we are, and we make so many demands, and we stomp our feet, and we live in this world in which we think all things ought to work together for good, but we are the determiners of what is good and what is not good. How many have ever tried to instruct God in your prayers? God, it would be good if you did this. Rahela says, wait, wait a second, he's going to do, and our deeds are in his hand. He must decide what is good and what is not good. And he says, in the context of life, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. What in the world is he talking about? Is he talking about everyday experiences in life? Is he saying that under this sun and your earthly existence, you will experience a, a, a wealth and a breadth of experience from love to hate, and you don't know which one is coming? Or is he saying, in this life, you don't know if God hates you or if He truly loves you, if, if your life is going to be blessed with divine favor or if in some way God is punishing you? Some of you torment yourself all of the time. When something goes sideways and calamity strikes, that somehow God is getting even. If God was getting even, none of us would be here this morning. We have to be really careful how we interpret the events of life. And as he's wrestling with this and trying to come to grips with the reality that our lives and everything that we do in our life are in the hand of God, we will experience this love-to-hate reality of life under the sun, and we have no control over that. There is no rationale to what God is doing and why He is doing it. Yet both of these lives and all of our lives are before God. He just doesn't happen to give us a heads-up of what's coming next. Now, I don't know about you, Every once in a while, I'd like a heads up, Lord. Tired of being surprised all the time. Sometimes disappointed. Could you just let me know what you're doing? That easily slips into, all right, fine, don't tell me. I'm going to figure it out myself, God. And now our perspective is under the sun. And he said, you know what I've come to? (laughs) 
No matter what I take back, it's still in His control. All of my days are numbered. There's nothing that I can do to add or take away from any of them. I don't even know what will happen tomorrow. All of our deeds are before Him. Isn't it funny? Sometimes we lament the fact that we have little control over life. But an irony that blinds us to see what is directly in front of us. We're so worried about things that we can't control that we miss the little gifts that God gives us every single day and sometimes every single moment. Remember when you were a kid playing football on, on the front lawn or, or, or something like that, trying to do somersaults, and you got the wind knocked out of you? And you're just heaving for breath, and you finally get it, and it's the most wonderful thing in the world. I, I, we t- otherwise, we take breathing for granted, don't we? There are simple things in life that slip by because we're trying to control the things that we cannot control. And as he laid it to heart, and as he examined it, he realized that things are in the hand of God. Now, you can say, he's writing as a cynic, it's in the hands of God, and I can't trust him. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think as an apologist, he is trying to teach us, listen, you don't know, and you won't know, and life will be this broad experience that we all experience. Make sure you're not blind to the things that are right in front of you, the simple things and the little things and the goodness of God. He says in verse 2, it is the same for all. All of us will reach the same fate, and it is very clear that what he's speaking of is what he's wrestled with in the rest of the text. That fate, of course, is death. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Please understand that he's wrestled with this before. He's tried to make sense out of the question, why is it that the wicked seem to be blessed with long life, and why is it that the godly seem to receive short lives? He's wrestling with the questions in life that he cannot resolve in all of his intellect and in all of his wisdom, and simply saying the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, and there doesn't seem to be any reason behind it. Of course, God hasn't seen fit to give us the reason behind it. You can ask the question, why am I suffering? Or you can step out of your own experience and say, why do people suffer? But in either case, you will not find any answer under the sun. Both the righteous and the good experience life in their allotted time according to the sovereignty of God, and there's nothing that they can do to change that. doesn't matter if you're good or evil, clean or unclean those who sacrifice and those who don't. He's speaking of, of, of even religious practices. There's, there's no control. There's, there doesn't seem to be any equation that says, this is why this happened. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as the one who shuns an oath. And in the end of the day, they all die. It just doesn't make sense. In my vain life, he says in chapter 7, verse 15, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. God, that doesn't make sense. It's not fair. He says in Chapter 8, verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are those who are righteous who receive the reward of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is also vanity. It gives me no hope. It gives me no promise. But what he's really saying in the text is, I don't and I can't figure it out. I've committed my whole life to this, and it just doesn't make sense. So I've come to the conclusion that all of our deeds are in the hand of God. 
I've come to the conclusion that we don't know what will happen tomorrow. I've come to the conclusion that no matter how you live your life, we will all face the same reality. Everyone is going to die. And this, he says, verse 3, is an evil. I don't think that the evil is all are going to die. That's just reality. I think the evil in his mind is, I can't figure out why some people die and others don't. I don't understand how the wicked seem to thrive and the righteous seem to perish. I don't understand why God's scale isn't so clear that people get exactly what they deserve. But be careful of demanding of God that you get what you deserve, for there's none righteous, no, not one, and none that seeketh after God. Outside of the divine intervention of God, we are all accountable to our sin. So as he wrestles through all of this, he says there is an evil and that none of this seems to make sense in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't be good as opposed to the sinner. I can't be righteous as opposed to the wicked. I can't be good as opposed to the evil. I can't be clean as opposed to the unclean. I can't sacrifice or worship as opposed to those who don't worship. None of that changes the reality of life. And also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. Perhaps that madness is the very schemes that he speaks of in the end of chapter 7. And all of us go, in the end, to the same place. They go to the dead. And when that happens, he was joined with all of the living as hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now, we can see that as the writing of a cynic, as the writing of a pessimist, of, as the writing or the voice of those in our life that, that we know. No matter how blessed life is today, it is going to storm tomorrow. No matter how good it is today, certainly there's going to be a left turn somewhere, and it'll all come crashing in on us. There are those who are so consumed trying to figure out life that they, they never get around to living life. And I suspect that that's all of us at one point or time, and maybe, maybe, the experience is we kind of drift back and forth between the most. Here's what he says as an apologist. As long as you're still alive, there's hope hope in what? The certainty of death? Well, perhaps he's speaking of that as a cynic. Or perhaps he's speaking of the reality that as long as I'm here under the sun, I just as soon might as well make the best of it. I might as well experience the joys of it. I might as well understand that, that I can't change or control any of it. But it depends on the voice that he's using. As a cynic, he's saying, there's only one thing in life that you can rely on. You're going to die. As an apologist, maybe he's saying, we're all going to die and you can't change that. But you must learn to enjoy the life that God has given you until it is taken away. And I believe that the text and some of the things that he says hereafter seem to be that apologetic kind of understanding. He uses the proverb that a living dog is better than a dead lion. You see, in that culture, the dog was despicable. It was the worst of worst. It was a symbol of death. And the lion was a symbol of majesty and glory. It was larger than life. But he says, hey, listen, the dog that is alive is better than the lion that is dead. There's no comparison to that. As he uses this proverb and, and speaks of these realities, I can't help but 
think in, in my mind of his conclusion, the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, because that is the whole duty of man. You can't control death. You can't control the day of your birth. You can't control in between, at least from the standpoint of your attitude and perception and pursuits in life. You must find a way, some way, somehow in context to understand that while we are alive, there is still opportunity. There's an opportunity to get things straight and to think straight and to give up those things that we like to hang on tightly to. And even though the living, in verse 5, know that they will die, once you are dead, you know nothing. Alarmingly, in the context of Ecclesiastes, he never brings up eternal hope. He never speaks to it directly. And perhaps the reason that he doesn't speak it to, to it directly, maybe in, in veiled tones, as I believe he's speaking in this text, he, he never speaks to it directly because he doesn't know or he is, he is living with a perspective under the sun. He hasn't stopped to consider something beyond that right now. And as he's posed the question of under the sun and seeking and searching out and figuring out this life here on his own, he doesn't speak much of eternity and hope and promise believer today has in Jesus Christ. He says, the living know that they will die, and after death the dead know nothing. The dead have no more reward, and the memory of them is forgotten. What a truly depressing book if you don't understand what he's trying to accomplish. Throughout the whole text, he says some content contrary kind of things. Seems to contradict him over himself over and over and over again. And here's what I'd suggest to you. That's exactly what happens in life when you think that you're in control. On good days, you say one thing. On bad things, you say another. And you are a captive to your circumstances. And in many ways, this is how it plays out in his life. But maybe he's saying, hey, you know what? When you're dead, your opportunity to enjoy your life is over. Seems rather simplistic, doesn't it? Of course that's true. If I'm dead, my life is over. So maybe he's saying, so perhaps stop worrying about that. It's in the hands of God. And, and worry about how you live. Worry about what you do and your perspective on life. Recognize that there's no more reward. You don't get a do-over. You can't fix it. You can't change a thing after you're dead. And maybe, just, just maybe, people will give you a pass after you die and, and look at you in far better terms that you should be looked at. But it doesn't change reality. There's nothing that you can do about yesterday. It's over. It's gone. There's no more reward. There's, there's no more return on investment. It's too late. To top it all off, no one's going to remember you anyhow. He's wrestling with the meaning of life. He's wrestling with reality. He comes to the conclusion that everyone's going to die, and that is in the hand of God, and there's nothing you can do about it. What you can do something about the days that lead to that day of death. Because when you die, your love and your hate and your envy have already perished. All of the experiences of life are gone. They don't come back. You don't get a second chance. It's over. Life here, as you know it, is done. And there's no more share in all that is done under the heaven. Without the reality of God, without the confidence in the finished work of Christ and, and a living hope that comes from it, it's all we have, dead, dead. But I seem to hear him cry out, there's got to be more than dead, dead. There just has to be. And in the end of the book, he says, well, there is. 
fear God and keep His commandments because that's the whole duty of man. And by the way, you will answer for every day under the, uh, under the heavens. Every day of your life you will answer to eventually to this God who sits on the throne. Couched in His conclusion, there are some powerful lessons. And if you've missed them, he, He's kind enough to share one of those with us. He's said it a couple of other times, but here's what He says. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Gibson writing on the book of Ecclesiastes, within the context of 7, 8, and 9, says it reveals the way in which the preacher looks at the world as we know it. And takes us to the heart of his purpose in writing Ecclesiastes. He wrote the book to smash into tiny pieces our idea that we can be like God. We aspire to have it all and to know it all and to do it all and to achieve it all and to be happy forever, to have all of the answers and never to be left scratching our head and to be remembered by all for all time. That's what we hope for. And the writer says, but here's what you get. And if the book stopped there, it would be a depressing book. But perhaps, and this is Gibson's theory as he writes on Ecclesiastes, he is trying to teach us how to live well and to die well. He's trying to teach us to make the most of this opportunity so when it's all said and done, you have lived your life for the glory of the God who holds all deeds in his own hand. As he transitions, he begins to talk about that a little bit, and it reminds me of what James says in his epistle, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast is in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows to do the right thing and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And in the Kohalas conclusion, he's speaking to us to make the most of the opportunities provided for us, to go, to seek out, wherever it can be found, happiness and joy, a merry heart and the simple blessings of life that God has approved. Now listen carefully. <clears throat> In his struggle, he came to the conclusion that he deserved all of this. You see, if I do this, God has to do this. He's now given up that notion. And he said, I haven't earned or, or achieved any of this. It is God's hand upon me. All my deeds are in his life. So I must learn every single day to live my life with joy to live my life based on the generosity of God, to live my life experiencing not just the common graces of life, but God's goodness in even the little things in life. I, I intended now in my heart to give up this quest and, and finally just live my life to, to the best I could. This notion that somehow God has approved and appointed the days of my life, it is the the Roman poet Horace, who once wrote, seize the day and trust as little as possible in tomorrow. And yet so many of us are worried about tomorrow and the things that we cannot control, that it saps us and robs us of the simple things in life. So many of us have not only failed to live life with a living hope, we have lived our life in some dreadful posture the heart of bitterness because it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. As if somehow we determine how it turns out. He says, let your garments be always white. May you be clothed with a joyful, a joyful spirit. Not in ignorance, not pretending that bad things don't happen, but knowing and counting the good things that do. Let not oil be lacking on your head, the blessing and the promise 
and the nourishment and, and the joy and the realities of life, the happiness that God has intended for us under the sun. How can I be happy? Have you seen this world? You see, that's the problem. A living hope has seen God in all of His glory and knows that a better day is coming. And that living hope teaches us to number our days and make the most of every opportunity and join the simple things in life, for this too shall pass. That is the balance that so escapes not just the writer, but all of us. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun. And on, on all the days that are mysterious, and all of the ways that you cannot figure out God, in spite of all of the questions you have about why and, and when and where and who, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy life in the midst of all of your questions and despair, because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you find under the sun. Take advantage of the little moments when you hold the hand of the wife of your youth without a word being spoken, and there's a contentment that comes with that. Take advantage of the relationships that God has blessed you with to find some good. If you don't, you will see bad in everything. You got to love the people who spend their whole lives complaining that other people aren't who they expect or need them to be but never look at themselves in the mirror. The truth and the reality is we need to accept people and all of their strengths and in all of their failures. And it's hard to live this way, but I purposed, not always getting it right, to understand that there are good things that people bring to the table, but there's always a downside, and you must learn to negotiate that because people will disappoint you all the time. I wonder if he's saying the same thing about marriage. If you're putting all of your eggs in that basket and my husband or my wife will finally make me happy, big mistake. But in the difficulties of life, enjoy the little things. Enjoy the simple things, the little jokes, the little looks, those nuances of relationship. Don't forget that everyone's going to die, and life is unpredictable and unknowable. So in your portion, this mixed bag that we call life, find something freeing and empowering. And he says here, enjoy the little things and the simple things and the physical and intellectual struggles that come with your life. I'm going to give you my commentary on this text. Maybe it's to myself. I don't know. Maybe he's saying, hey, listen more and talk less. He tells us about that in chapter 5. Maybe he's saying, hey, slow down. As the world's rushing by, you're missing the little blessings and the little things that bring a fleeting sense of joy. Maybe he's saying, hey, listen, sit down and read a book. Reflect upon your thoughts. Laugh with friends. Laugh at giggling children. Do you ever see those videos of kids who just laugh uncontrollably? It brings a lightness to my spirit. It's, it's nice to see. Maybe he's saying, take a drive. Stop looking at the odometer and the gas tank and the speedometer. Look out the window. Have you noticed the foliage? That's a gift from God. Here today and gone in November. But a gift. Maybe he's saying, hey, listen, enjoy that spectacular sunrise. Enjoy that, that glorious sunset. In a very personal way. Enjoy sitting in a tree stand at the height of the fall and realize how glorious God is. Stand outside in a wet snowstorm. You know what I'm talking about, where the, where the air and the flakes are heavy. And there's not, a, there's not a sound anywhere. The world seems to have gone silent. 
get up before the sun rises and listen to nature come to life, enjoy the gifts of God. But if you're trying to figure this out, it will rob you of all of those opportunities. It will rob you of all of those glorious surroundings. It will rob you of the very things that God has given you to find pleasure in. C.S. Lewis warns us as well that those natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They're still called so, but it can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. He goes on in that text, Weight of Glory, to say that some of those simple things in life become idols to us. Let's think about the man's life, his wealth given to him by God to enjoy became his idol. His possessions given to him by God to enjoy became his idol. Relationships with the opposite sex given to him by God to enjoy became an idol, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Even in the little things in life, they can become so big that they drown out the vision and the voice of God in your life. We must learn how to enjoy the little things that bring pleasure the way God intended without without concluding that all pleasure comes only in these things because then they become idols. And for some of you, church becomes an idol. You check the boxes and do all of the right things, and you're still restless because you don't know Him. You fail to understand the blessings in life. You're expecting that God somehow, because of your behavior, will do something different in your life. And He's saying, it doesn't happen. And it's a really difficult thing to enjoy the little things in life without allowing them to become idols. Struck me this weekend. So, I'm driving an older Jeep God's blessed me with a newer Jeep, but I'm driving an older one, and the check engine came on, and oh boy, here we go again. That's all I drove when I was young. Remember those days? That was a deal, driving a, drive, driving a car that burned oil. Boy, how spoiled we become. That's what he's saying. Just, just enjoy life and give up on your expectations, and don't let things become an idol. So, whatever your hands… Finds to do, do it with all of your might. Because soon it is over. And there's no more work and no more thought and no more knowledge and no more wisdom to where you are going. Whatever it is that God has enabled you to do, do it. And count it as a blessing from God. Recognizing that your experiences in life will be mixed. We should not spend our time worrying about the future while failing to live well in the present before God. Some of us have not only failed to learn to live with joy, we've forgotten that everything that we do is before the face of God. And it's only that that leads us to conclude, fear God and keep His commandments because that's what life is all about. And the rest of this stuff will come under judgment. How are you living your life? Are you living well? Do you have a living hope or is your hope just in the end sometime? Life is a misery and then you die. That's a perspective problem. And I know life is hard sometimes. I've experienced that hardness. But in the midst of it, God has been so kind to remind me in little glimpses that He is still a good God. And as long as I have life and breath, my deeds are in His hands, and I must make the most of today with the hope of tomorrow. 
One of the verses in Ecclesiastes to this point that has made the biggest impact in my life is found back in chapter 3 when he talks about all of the events under heaven. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So the people fear before Him. But here's why it's so freeing to me. No matter what I'm going through at any minute of every day, God knows. And not only my life, but my deeds are in His hands. There's no better place to be. So we enjoy the little things, and we let go of the big things, and we embrace a living hope. Surely we're all going to die. But until then, enjoy and find joy. And after that, anticipate the glorious presence of your king. Finding that balance? Hard thing. Hard thing. Father, bless us. Encourage us. Teach us. Challenge us. Remind us that in your sovereignty, every single deed, every thought, every blessing, every need, every heartache, every laugh and every giggle, every blessing and every hardship, rest under the divine authority of the God of all the universe. There's nothing we can do about it. So teach us, indeed, to go and be merry to eat, acknowledging the blessing of God, to see, acknowledging the glory of God, to be, acknowledging the presence of God, to live in the context of the hope and confidence that we have in God. May we not squander this life for the next, but may we live well and to the fullest that we might die well and be ushered into the presence of our King. What a deep challenge. Help us to negotiate it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?